This is Class 36. Today we get back to the Return of the King. Although we don't quite get to Denethor as I hoped we would, we do get as far as the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. All right. Um, so we're uh, at risk of falling behind again, so I'm going to try to go fast again today. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Aragorn, especially in Chapter 2, but then also at the Battle of Pelennor Field. Um, From the time when the rangers show up uh, and Aragorn decides to look in the Palantir, I mean, just thinking of him and the way that he talks and the stuff that he says and the things that he does and sort of go back and remember meeting him in Bree, and this is a, these are some pretty big changes. He talks differently than he used to talk. He's not like a totally different character. Um, but things are, things are pretty different. His stature has increased tremendously. We've seen sort of flashes of it before. Um, you know, there was that moment that we talked about before in the Argonauts, right, when he sort of, you know, is, is revealed there, you know, as they're paddling down the river um, briefly. Um, there are these other sort of flashes that we've gotten. He, like Gandalf, seems to, in some sense, go around uncloaked most of the t- go around cloaked most of the time, and only uncloaks himself uh, on particular occasions. Um, it's like now, particularly from when he looks in the Palantir, the cloak is just off. Right when he says, uh, "There's really no point in secrecy for me anymore." Right, I'm I'm riding across the open fields as fast as I can. Um, and, of course, it seemed, it's not just, hey, like people might see us and report that there are horsemen on the move. Uh, secrecy in a completely different, in, in this sort of deeper sense, um, is plainly um, not part of the policy anymore. I want to make sure we recognize, though, the significance. What happens with the Palantir? Yeah, Duncan? Doesn't he actually have, like, a, well, a physical battle, but uh, have a battle with Sauron for... Power over the Yes. And wins. And wins. Wrenches. Yes. Wrenches is the word that he uses, and I wrenched it to my will. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. He, he, he looks into the Palantir, knowing that Sauron is on the other end, right? Looks at him, challenges him, threatens him, and rips the Palantir away from him to look where he wants to go. Um, something which Gandalf said he wasn't sure that he could do. Now, Aragorn says he has two... Fact, there are two factors that led to his ability to do this. Doing this with the Palantir required two things. What were they? Do you remember, Duncan? I remember him saying that Sauron saw him in a way that nobody else had seen him. Yeah, good. He says that he saw me in other guys than, than you see me now. And again, that's sort of... He saw that... That true him, you know, the Aragorn uncloaked, right? Um, he didn't see this weather-beaten ranger as they first saw him, right? This guy in undoubtedly, you know, muddy and torn clothing. Remember, he's been through the battle, and then they marched to, 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 to Isengard, and now they've been on the, you know, so he, he probably looks pretty shabby, right? But this is not what he saw. He saw the heir of Isildur revealed, I love how he says, I showed him the sword. As it's just trying to picture that. Like, he's holding it, but like, look. Like, did he have to, like, go, like, across? Or was, he, was there, like, something on it? I mean, I, just, I, I always kind of... Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm, yeah, I mean, it's, it's... Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm, well, yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like, like I'm going to picture message Sauron. Like, I'm going to ta- take a picture of my sword and send it to Barad-dur. Ah, I mean, it's... It's kind of, yeah, it, it is, it's, uh, there's something about the showing him the sword that always kind of makes me giggle, and I, I'm sure it's me. But anyway, uh, he's, Sauron's response is fear, but to, to go back to the question I was asking, the two qualifications, he says, are that, he says there, there is one, and I love it when Aragorn talks like this, like of himself in the ominous, detached third person, there was one who has the right and the strength to look in the stone. And he says, the right could not be doubted. The strength was enough, barely. So it's not, it doesn't end up as pompous a statement as it sounds at the beginning. But uh, though, again, pomposity, Aragorn is very confident in himself. I mean, he knows who he is. This is one of the things which made, uh, 
me so deeply confused uh, when watching The Fellowship in the Ring in the theaters for the first time when Aragorn says, but I turned from that path long ago. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I, mean, I don't even know what or who we're talking about here because Aragorn is about as far from that as possible. Um, I mean, I've said this before, but this is one of the clearest illustrations. This and Faramir are the two clearest indi- examples. The movies take all of the above life-size characters, the epic archetypal hero characters in this story, and try to bring them down to human level uh, so that we can relate to them. I think this is a really sort of unfortunate mistake. I think that the fact that we get these archetypal heroes um, is one of the things that make these stories so powerful. And of course, Tolkien, of all books, Tolkien takes special care to moderate that within an understandable framework. That is, we have the hobbits to relate to if we want to relate to somebody, right? I mean, the whole story is told from the hobbit point of view. You know, so, so the, the, you know, the, 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 the camera angle is all from about, you know, two feet off the ground throughout this story. So the, there are big people who are just big. And we're not supposed to be like that. I mean, no hobbit is like, I want to be Aragorn when I grow up, right? Or even I want to be Faramir when I grow up, or I want to be Boromir even, right? I mean, because they can't do that. They can't be that. They can be other things. They can be great, but they can't be like that. And there's no desire to be. Um, but we have, you know, this is interesting. One of the things that Christopher Tolkien has said several times since he published The Silmarillion, the thing that he regretted most was that he didn't put in there was some frame material of the Silmarillion which he didn't put in because he wasn't confident in it. That is, it's plainly implied, um, as Professor Drought alluded to in the last class, that the Silmarillion material uh, is within the story designed to be books that Bilbo wrote while in Rivendell. He will give them to Frodo at the end, uh, near the end of the the. Return of the King, and they will be titled Translations from the Elvish by B.B. Um, and that stuff is clearly the Silmarillion stuff. So there was available a Hobbit framework. Um, it's a complicated one because, of course, it's a Hobbit's translation of stories by elves, some of which were told to them by the Valar. So there's still lots of sort of textual levels within the Silmarillion there. But Christopher Tolkien suppressed it and felt later on that that was a mistake because it didn't provide that sort of more human framework for people to approach the stories from. And instead, you just start off on page one uh, in the midst of loftiness, and you're in loftiness all the way. And it's kind of, and sometimes, as many people have found, it's kind of hard to find your place in it right away. The hobbits give you your place. But Aragorn isn't our place. <laughs> I mean, that's not where we're supposed to be like, Aragorn, you know, I really feel... Aragorn, he's just like me. I mean, like, if you're having that experience, you're reading a story which is just a profoundly different story from, from, from this story. Brittany? Um, removing Arwen from, like, the main flow story also prevents you from connecting with I agree. And I think, you know, some people will say, well, gosh, you know, the Arwen-Aragorn love story, isn't that supposed to be, like, one of the big deals? And it is completely, you know, Arwen herself is totally in the background in that story is completely in the background? Yeah, it is. That doesn't mean it's not important. But again, it's one of the things, it's one of the amazing things. I mean, we've talked at times before about the effect that Tolkien creates with sort of the untold stories, you know, that that, that perception of depth, as it's been called by many, Tom Shippey first and others, um, that perception of depth, um, you know, when you, when you read it, that there are the, all these other stories out there that exist somewhere, but they're not being told here in the narrative, all the references to the stories, uh, to, the, to the Silmarillion stories and some others. Um, and Tolkien has done this amazing thing, which is at the heart of this story that he's telling and these characters that he's telling is this great and epic love story, one of the greatest and epic love stories of all time. But he's not telling it. He's letting you know that it's happening in the background, but he, will, he never, until the appendices, goes out of his way to tell it at all. And that's incredible. Of course, you know, in the movies, we absolutely can't do that, right? I mean, that, that to, to leave the love story entirely out of the movie and just kind of you know, let you know that it's there in the background, 
intolerable <laughs> from a film perspective. So we have to, we have to bring, I mean, indeed, if anything, I am really impressed, and I mean it, genuinely impressed, that they didn't foreground Arwen more than they did. That they made the decision, I mean, they almost did, but that, that, that they made the decision not to, to bring her centrally into the action. Which, and again, and the thing is, had they done it, had they done it, I couldn't have blamed them. I mean, I was expecting them to do it. I expected to see Arwen all the time. When I, when I, when I first saw the movie, it was, it was one of the things I was expecting. And I was pleasantly surprised to be wrong about that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was like, anything up to that, I would not have been surprised by. Um, yeah, I, I had... Yeah, and as I said, and, and I wouldn't even, for in, in, within a film, have really disapproved. I mean, I can understand that. Um, one of the things that's harder to do in film as a medium compared to books is to have that kind of submerged plot, like, I mean, that kind of background thing um, that you sort of know about and are made aware of and are invited to think about but is not really put, you know, done in the front of the stage. It's really hard to do that in films. Um, really hard to do that effectively anyway. So again, I couldn't even have blamed them. But Aragorn um, has the right and the strength to wrench the Palantir to his will. So he does, he faces down Saruman. And we should remember here, he's the heir of Isildur, right? The guy who stepped on Saruman's neck and cut the ring off of his hand uh, while he was beaten and groveling on the ground. I mean, that's what happens at the end of, the, of the, that, that battle, at the end of that war. Um, and here's Aragorn, who is looking like he might be able to do that again. Someone else who is exerting that, who faces him down in just a toe-to-toe battle of the wills and beats him. Um, and his whole point, what's his, his, his theory? What's his, his goal, Aragorn's goal? Not just to have the Palantir, because it's actually pretty handy, Right, I mean, he uses it to look around and see things that he couldn't have seen or known. This is how he finds out, oh, gosh, look, there's an enemy fleet coming up the Anduin. Um, there's no way Minas Tirith is going to be able to stand, and there's nobody else who can go, I, I, I better, you know, get myself south post-haste. So there's a practical use, of course, to the Palantir. But what's his goal? And he pulls Sauron's attention outward. Yes. And what kind of attention? What, what sort of attention is Sauron going to be directing towards... Minas Tirith and points west rather than his own boundaries. Marta? What's going to make him do something quicker than he would have previously? It's going to make him attack faster so that way he's not being careful about what's going on at home. Yes. Yes. Why? Why is he going to attack faster, though? Josh? He's afraid. He's afraid. He's afraid. Afraid of what exactly? I just... I'm spelling this out as painfully as I am because I, it's, it's easy for us to kind of miss this or skip over this because he's afraid of Aragorn. I mean, he has left that. Sauron is now at least a little bit. Maybe he's not shaking in his boots. I don't know about his boots, but he's, he's, he's at least nervous. And he has cause to be. Why? Because he's the heir of Isildur and... Uh, uh, also, you know, he's already suffered a defeat from him, and uh, Narsil's been, like, reformed. Yeah. I mean, this is the actual blade which cut his finger off previously. And, speaking of his finger being cut off, yes, he might have the ring. In fact, Sauron is likely he probably has the ring and could use it. So it's not just, oh, my gosh, it's Isildur again, like I'm having flashbacks to that really ugly moment with Isildur, <laughs> right? Right, exactly. That like, yeah, I'm having flashbacks. Like, oh, my hand, my hand. Poor Sauron, right? I mean, you got to feel bad for him under these <laughs> trying psychological circumstances. But, but also, yeah. In addition to that, he's probably got the ring. I mean, it's got to be somebody, right? I mean, one of them. Gandalf was already talking this way back in the council. Sauron. The only measure Sauron knows is desire. Desire for power, and by, and by such he judges all things, Gandalf says in the Council of Elrond. So, obviously, Sauron is assuming, this is not even an assumption, he knows his enemies have the ring. 
somebody is going to try to use it against him, obviously. That's the only thing to do. And now, oh my gosh, here's this powerful person who has just revealed himself to me, the heir of Isildur, got Isildur's sword reforged, is strong enough to rip the Palantir away from my control. Okay, candidate number one for who has the ring. And just the fact that he has the nerve, the guts, to, do, to challenge him like that, also suggests, okay, the new ring lord is making his move now. Right? So he has reason to be afraid. If Aragorn is going to meet him, Aragorn could beat him possibly by himself, certainly with the ring. Yeah, Brittany? I can't quite remember, but in the Silmarillion, wasn't Morgoth, like, he was afraid, so he attacked early? Yes, there were, well, Morgoth's early attacks tended to be sort of over-eagerness or impatience. Um, I don't remember this kind of an explicit preemptive strike. I don't think with exactly this motivation. I'd have to think about it more, but I don't recall right offhand. Yeah. Doesn't Sauron, like, still technically has the failsafe that only, like, really you have to be able to... You have to, like, want to bend people to your will as it were in order to use the ring, and Aragorn isn't really that type of guy. Dude, I don't know. That performance in the Palantir showed some power there. And this assertion of power. I mean, what he said, what, I mean, think of, again, like, what the the message was that Sauron got, right? Uh, Through the Palantir. Hi, here I am. I am really powerful. I'm going to, to take this power away from you. Oh, by the way, here's the sword with which I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Bye now, right? I mean, it's, if, if he were declaring himself, if he were asserting power, how would he do it differently? I mean, how would it look different? Um, and remember, it's not that, and he knows, it's not that it's impossible for people to use the ring against him. They could. Now, it would corrupt them, and they would become evil, that's going to be small consolation to him after he's already been overthrown. He doesn't want to be overthrown by even, even by someone who is going to go on and become evil. Um, it's not like he's going to, you know, like, take a hit for team evil uh, <laughs> and consider it, a, you know, like a no-net loss. Um, he, he's, yeah, he's, he's a little bit more self-oriented than that, it seems. So, um, so yeah, this is, as I say, we can forget, especially coming from the films, we can forget that... Sauron is not this megalithic, untouchable power that nobody can compete with. He is not yet so mighty that he is above fear, um, Aragorn says, and is plainly right. But again, look at what it says about Aragorn. Similarly, Aragorn's relationship with the, with the dead people. In the movies, we see Aragorn and the king of the dead, right? What's the difference in the books? It's another one of those scenes which, when you juxtapose it with the book, really emphasizes some things about the book. Yeah, Nick? There's really no conflict in the book, is there? None at all. None at all. Yeah, he summons them, and they come. There is a king of the dead in the book. Who is it? This is a trick question. Aragorn is the king of the dead. Yes, exactly. As he's, he, he summons, you know, come to the, to the stone of Erech, I summon you. And they're going, and the hosts of the dead are pouring across the land, and all of the people who live there, right, are running into their houses and, and closing their shutters and saying, the king of the dead, the king of the dead is upon us, by which they mean Aragorn, because he is the king. Um, the, the confrontation... It's not, I mean, th- there's this, like, I am begging hat in hand sort of attitude in the film. Hi, dead people. Um, I need your help. Would you like to help me? Please? I have a magic sword, right? I mean, that's kind of how the, how the thing, how, the, how, it, how it works. You know, and they, like, mess with him and mess with him and then are then, like, okay, except first we're going to dump, like, enormous tons of skulls on you <laughs> for reasons best known to ourselves, right? <laughs> But I have never gotten that, even once. Uh, 
I mean, <laughs> if he's king enough to climb the yeah, mountain of skulls, he's king enough. It's like a, I guess, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's like really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the book, he summons them to the stone of Erech, and they come. I mean, the speech that he gives them, you know, oathbreakers, why have you come? You know, and, and, and I mean, he, they are groveling before him to fulfill our oath and to have peace. And he's like, okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's like, I give you permission to fight for us is what he's doing uh, in the books. But again, the authority that he wields. And notice he's the heir of Isildur, the authority that Isildur wielded. Remember, how did they get where they are? The backstory of the dead people in the films is also pretty shaky. Aaron? Isildur cursed them when they didn't show up for battle. Yeah. He just, he, he lays a curse upon them, which works. Because if you're somebody like Isildur, you can do that. I mean, you, you have the power to cause an entire nation to live on as unquiet spirits for thousands of years just by laying your curse upon them for not fulfilling their oath. Um, yeah, Aragorn's performance throughout this is really pretty, pretty striking. He has, from, the, from almost the very beginning of Book 5 onward, he's almost now permanently uncloaked. He is Isildur's heir, uh, the... The, the future king of Gondor, um, the king of the dead, completely fearless. Um, now, notice, Tolkien still gives us, by describing things from Gimli's perspective, doesn't, you know, it sort of emphasizes what a big deal it is. I mean, the dead people are really scary. Aragorn's not scared of them, but they're really scary. Um, and we get some description there, but it doesn't affect him. Then Aragorn's arrival. One of the great eucatastrophes, my favorite eucatastrophe uh, in all of Tolkien, the arrival of Aragorn at the head of the fleet with black sails at the Battle of Pelennor Field. I am such a sucker for eucatastrophes. I don't think I've ever <coughs> cried at a sad movie in my life. Sad, but but eucatastrophic movies, oh man. <laughs> I, 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 it takes almost like almost, almost any, even a very mediocre, like, you catastrophe happy ending will, like, make me cry in a film. And boy, uh, and in books, like, I, man, I, like, tear up at the Battle of Pelennor Field, like, every single time I read this book. It is it's an amazing you catastrophe. What do you notice about it? What's important about it? What's interesting about it? Uh, just the sales and that, um, it bears the mark of the king that hasn't been seen in thousands of years. Yeah. And not just that, but it's not even a design. They're gems. They're actual gems that Arwen somehow crafted really quickly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. R.C. Our, our, it's, 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 our, Arwen's not just doing embroidery, right? <laughs> somehow she was working gems into stars on this banner and everything. So she's, she's not, doesn't just sew. But yes, the unfurling of the banner is the moment of you catastrophe, right? And, and the way that it's set up, uh, the eucatastrophic effect, that is the, the sudden turn, um, is so, em- so heartily emphasized by the fleet with black sails, right? The moment of despair when it looks like everything is lost. This is the final stroke of doom, they say. And it is, right? Except the other way around. And then the banner unfurls, and it's the banner of the king, um, it's not just Aragorn himself who is the eucatastrophe. Um, he's the last one described of the people getting off the ships and coming in to fight. Not that he's the least important, but anyway, it's not. And here's Aragorn. It's, this is the moment when the king returns to Gondor um, and declares himself as the king. And what does he look like? There is a feature described of him which we've never seen before, when he comes off the boat into the battle, Nick? He has a star on his brow. He got this from Rivendell too. The sons of Elrond brought it. It's one of the heirlooms. 
uh, of, of, of Gondor. Um, Elendil and Isildur and them used to wear stars bound on their brow, which, which shone with light. Uh, and he still got one. He doesn't wear it most of the time, leaves it in Rivendell, but they brought it for him. So when he goes into battle, he's got the star of the West on his forehead, and he's got the banner of the king shining above him, and he's got Enduril, Narsal, Reforged. The king is back now. <laughs> we don't have any ceremony now, but this is the moment of the return of the king. And it's, that, it's the power of that. I mean, remember what we were talking about Theoden, Right? And the impact of the king, you know, and the Kaoral's little turn, right? Go back. We have no hope. Oh, now the king is here. Now we shall ride to victory. And that's like times 400 in Gondor, right? When Aragorn returns, fulfilling his own prophecy to Amir, remember? Remember the prophecy he fulfills? I mean, like one of the, like his own prophecy? Something about meeting again in the Wallabies from Yes, when he's setting off for the paths of the dead, Aemir's a little down about this, right? And he says, alas, my friend, I had hoped that our swords would be drawn in battle again together, but now I fear we won't meet again. And Aragorn says, we may yet meet again, though all the hordes of Mordor lie between us. And, of course, then when they do finally meet, he says, hey, didn't I tell you that we'd meet again, though all the hordes of Mordor lay between us? And Aemir's like, yep. So, uh, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a... Yeah, even his own prophecies are being fulfilled here uh, in this moment. It's just all the more reason why I. Okay, I, I almost stopped myself because I've already been saying bad things about the films today. But I can't help it. The arrival of Aragorn at the Battle of Pelador Fields in the movies sucks. Okay, I'm just going to go on record as saying that, I mean, it is so un catastrophic It's kind of funny. Like, you know, the whole, like, there are the three of us alone jumping off the ships and everyone, like, being really confident and then the dead people coming in and doing everything and us doing almost nothing. Like, it's funny. But when you take like the greatest you catastrophe at all of Tolkien and make it into something that's like kind of comical, that sucks. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I just, I really can't. Now, again, as always, to be fair, the charge of the Rohirrim in the, in the films, really good. They do really well. Why they find it, they themselves able to do justice to Theoden and not justice to Aragorn, I don't know. But the charge of the Rohirrim in the films is really, really good. Um, but okay, I've achieved my balance there. Uh, but I think I think like okay, I feel better. Um, <laughs> speaking of Theoden, Theoden gets some amazing moments here. Um, Who is he compared to? You remember as he's charging into the battle. Of course, there's a parallel between what's happening and the founding of the Mark, the charge of Aeorl the Young. Um, the situations are pretty close. Um, the, the Battle of the Field of Celebrant, it's been referred to a couple times. The more full story uh, is told in the appendices. But um, basically, you know, Gondor was, was in combat. They were losing. They were, they were sort of backed up against a river, and this orc... Horde had the, this was after the kings had already gone, it was the steward. Um, the steward and his army were there and they were about to lose and then unexpectedly out of nowhere, Aeorl the Young leads the host of the Rohirrim in and they sweep in and turn the tide and win the battle and it's after that that the steward of, Roha, of, of, of Gondor gives them uh, the lands that had been called Kalanarthan to become Rohan and to become their kingdom. So, I mean, that's, that's the, uh, um, there's, there's a clear parallel between, uh, between those two things. But it's not just Errol the Young that he recalls. Find it? Even as Oromi the Great in the Battle of the Valar when the world was young. Yes, like Oromi is compared to one of the Valar. Now, remember... When this was published, nobody had any idea who Orme was. This is another one of those references which, you know, when you're reading in the 50s, you're just like, I'm sure Orome must have been very impressive, right? But, of course, we have read the Silmarillion, and we know Orome really was <laughs> very impressive. Uh, and he was one of the ones whom 
Morgoth feared. Remember, the Misty Mountains are there in order to impede uh, Orome's progress as he goes across Middle-earth. Um, anyway. Let's read that. Page 819. There's that change in the wind, that change in the wind which prompts everything, right? Um, The darkness begins to break. The people are encouraged. At that sound, the bent shape of the king sprang suddenly erect. Tall and proud he seemed again, and rising in his stirrups, he cried in a loud voice, more clear than any there had ever heard a mortal man achieve before, and he chants in Anglo-Saxon verse staves, which makes his chant much cooler. Arise, arise, riders of Theoden, fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter, spear shall be shaken, shield be splintered, a sword day, a red day, ere the sun rises, ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor. What does he emphasize in his poem? What is the emphasis in his call to arms here? In his call to the attack? They're waking up. Good. Arise, arise. Fell deeds awake. Right? And he's calling on them to to rise up. Marta? Well, he's also saying that, you know, bad things are going to happen too. Fire and slaughter, spear shall be shaken, shields, these splinters. Like, it's dangerous, but we're going to go anyway. Yeah, yeah, there is no, in none of the, in none of the uh, calls to arms or, 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 or challenges or anything that the Rohirrim sing on this day, nowhere is there just confidence. You know, this is, this is worlds away from, you know, like a taunt of your enemies, you know, or like this, you know, a confident boasting or anything like that. Um, Today will be a sword day, a red day. This doesn't even say who's going to win or that he has any idea who's going to win. All that it promises are that fell deeds are awaking. That might be bad. In fact, that's probably bad. But that's not what matters. Ride now to Gondor. That's, that's what matters. Um. Every time I see a remembering of Horin, every time you see something that has to do with like the sun and night yes. and day, you kind of go back to the fact he says, before the sun rises, you know, he, the sun is going to rise, but we're going to have to work for it. Yes. Day shall come again. And day does come again. The first light of the sun shines in. The first light is stricken from the... Uh, that surrounds Theoden as he rides on. He breaks the darkness. Not by himself, right? This wind is coming up from the south to break the clouds, as well, of course, as to usher up Aragorn's fleet from the south so that they'll get there just in time. The weather appears to be conspiring to help here in what is probably not a coincidence, right? His shield shines like an image of the sun, And the grass flamed into green about the white feet of his steed, for morning came, morning and a wind from the sea, and darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled and died, and the hooves of wrath rode over them. So good. So good. Um, Yes, yes. And then all the host of Rohan burst into song and they sang as they slew for the joy of battle was on them and the sound of their singing was fair and terrible. Oh, man, yes. Uh, one, thing that, one thing that Tolkien does stylistically, which is really cool, he changes his syntax in moments like this. Notice how many times the word and is used in this paragraph. Um, he changes his style from... Uh, what is called hypertactic uh, syntax to, to paratactic syntax. That is the difference between complex sentences with lots of subordinate clauses and uh, paratactic syntax. Paratactic style 
is, for those of you who took Arthurian lit, what Mallory uses all the time, bunches and bunches of independent causes strung together with and. Um, and this is not, though some of you who might read Mallory may perhaps have thought otherwise at times, this is not incompetence. This is a stylistic choice. Okay? Uh, and Tolkien makes this stylistic choice, and he, 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 he shifts into parataxis at these times, um, at, at these times of high drama. Whenever he wants to accelerate the pace, whenever he's describing the field of battle, he always moves into this. Um, and they fled and died, and the hooves of wrath... You're not, I mean, there's, there are not subordinate clauses here, because that requires for you to pause and look down and think again and do all these other things. And this, you know, you just want... You know, idea and idea and this and that and that and that. Um, it's th- the pace of it really accelerates. It can get really breathless if you do it too much. Um, but Tolkien is very careful in deploying that. It's one of the things that makes that make his um, his battle sequences so powerful. I know at least you talked about sort of the pacing of Helm's Deep when we were looking at that. And when he's when he is sort of getting into more of the description of a battle, um, he does a really amazing job. Uh, with that, yeah. It also like makes me think of like more almost epic poetry. Like it sounds like a older style of writing to me. Even just reading it in like, English, it sounds like it's probably which it is. Um. Yeah, exactly. It is, but it is in like three different ways. I mean, on the one hand, yes, it uh, that is an older style. People don't write that way anymore. Um, you have to go back to people like Maori to really see that kind of thing consistently. Um, and also, he is, so he is self-consciously imitating that older style. But of course, it is also, you know, remember as we were talking about with Professor Drought last time, this is an old book, right? It's supposed to be, uh, it, it, it is a book with a history. It is, it is, this is an ancient story that's been told and retold and edited, Right. Like he's kind of copying the style and it acts to up the pace even more than the syntax itself does. Yeah. And it's not, and it's never designed to be a journalistic account. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. Look at his last words, Theoden's last words. I love how Mary stoops and kisses his hand as he's lying there. So he's lying there unconscious, having his horse fallen on him when, when the, ring, the Lord of the Ring Wraith swoops down. And he wakes up and sees Mary, whom he told to stay at home, and doesn't know Mary's there, right? But waking up and seeing Mary, he says, Farewell, Master Hallbeetler. I just love the fact that he doesn't take any adjustment to the fact that Mary's there. It's like the most natural thing in the world. Farewell, Master Hallbeetler. My body is broken. I go to my father's, and even in their mighty company I shall not now be ashamed. I felled the black serpent, a grim morn and a glad day and a golden sunset. Mary, with pardonable understatement or humility, says that he hasn't done anything more in his service than to weep in their parting, which is certainly not true, as he's just given the major assist in the killing of the Lord of the Ringwraiths immediately <laughs> prior to this. Um, Grieve not, it is forgiven. Great heart will not be denied. Live now in blessedness, and when you sit in peace with your pipe, think of me. For never now shall I sit with you in Mediceld as I promised, and listen to your herb lore. It's like... It's like a hobbit moment that Theoden is having. Uh, I mean, remember Mary and Pippin sitting there eating their lembas in the middle of the of the battle with Aemir and the orcs, right? Uh, and the talk about that's kind of like a hobbit. Well, here's Theoden, lying, dying in the middle of the battlefield. The, uh, it, the Ringwraith has just died. Um, all of his knights are lying dead around him, and Eowyn is lying over there, though he doesn't know it. Um, and here he's apologizing for... Uh, not being able to hear about old Toby. Um, he does speak again on page 825, uh, anointing, well, not anointing, but affirming Aemir as king, addressing him as king of the mark. Look at Aemir's 
Amir sings two sets of staves in this battle. One is right then, as Theoden dies, and Amir says, Mourn not over much. Mighty was the fallen, meat was his ending. When his mound is raised, women then shall weep. War now calls us. Yet he himself wept as he spoke. Mighty was the fallen, meat was his ending. As Theoden said, a grim morn and a glad day and a golden sunset. Look at the second poem Aramir sings. On page 829. They are now losing. They are gathered on a hill to make a last stand. And he sets his banner on top of the green hillock and says, Out of doubt, out of dark, to the day's rising, I came singing in the sun, sword unsheathing. To hope's end I rode, and to heart's breaking. Now for wrath, now for ruin, and a red nightfall. We, of course, should be remembering Theoden's song, A Sword Day, A Red Day, Ere the Sun Rises. Right, he's responding to that. Out of dark to the day's rising, I came singing in the sun, sword unsheathing. To hope's end, I rode, it turns out, and to heart's breaking. What's the response? To the loss of hope? He's lost hope for victory? Now for wrath, now for ruin, and a red nightfall. Now comes the night, says Aemir. But, but he laughs as he says them. For once more the lust of battle was on him, and he was still unscathed, and he was young, and he was king, the lord of a fell people. And lo, even as he laughed at despair, he looked out again on the black ships, and he lifted up his sword to defy them. And I can't read the next paragraph or I'll break down and cry like a baby in front of all of you. Uh, This is the moment of you catastrophe, right? When he lifts up his sword, laughing to defy the oncoming fleet, that's when the banner is revealed. Will? It doesn't sound like he's lost hope. It sounds like he's he's found it. Like when they go into this battle, they're not confident. They're not confident. They're going in, but they don't think they're going to win. But at this point, you know... Uh, he's he's king and he's young and he's strong and he's riding for wrath and for ruin and this is the night. Yeah, it's it's really complicated. This is one of the reasons that I, that I said before. Just pay attention when they talk about hope because it's it's complicated. Um, the loss of hope isn't always a bad thing and isn't even always as we might use the word normally, hopeless, or a sign of hopelessness. Uh, I mean, I agree with you. Well, it sounds like he's gaining hope, but he's not really. It's because it is at this moment that he has given up survival. It is, he is now, at that moment, 100% convinced that he's going to die and all of his people are going to die. He now believes there is no chance that that's not going to happen. And there shall be no one to re- left to remember the last king of the mark. The last king of the mark who ruled for, well, like 45 minutes, maybe a couple hours if they last out a really long time, right? But hey, he was still the last king of the mark. Um, he believes that. And his re- but his response to that is not what we would call hopelessness. It's not despair. But see... I pause before saying despair, because remember, Gandalf says, despair is when you know the end beyond all doubt. But he thinks he does know the end beyond all doubt. That's exactly the point. So Gandalf's definition of despair is exactly where he is. But he does not despair in Denethor's sense of despair. Derek, you've been very patient. Um, 
Well, I really wanted to compare uh, Theoden as like an opposite of Denethor. Like they both lost the son and uh, both were seeing incredible hopelessness, but Theoden was stayed strong and um, and uh, fought, and Denethor, you know, foresaw and did nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yes. I mean, I think that there's... Remember the sequence. We see Denethor, evidence of Denethor's despair prior to the battle. Then we get the battle, and then we get the pyre of Denethor after the description of the battle of the Pelennor Fields. So we have already had the lesson from Theoden and Aemir about hope and hopelessness and despair. One lesson from them. And we bring that then back to Denethor. So I agree with you. Theoden is an excellent... And, and I mean, I'd throw Aemir in there too. Uh, excellent to sort of place against Denethor. Tolkien constructs this in such a way as to give us those examples immediately prior to sort of the full discussion and revelation of Denethor's despair. Um, And I think that that's a really important thing. Uh, There's no way I'm going to try to do Denethor in one minute. Uh, So I'm not going to go there quite yet. We'll do that at the beginning of class next time. But... uh, um, but 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 I definitely agree. Nick, what were you going to say? I was going to say on that note, you can see how we were talking about king, kings leading their people a couple of classes ago, and that's what Theoden does. He's riding out and he's happy, and then Denethor even says, "I came to great lords, don't do that." And he's sitting up there in his armor with his sword and saying, "I'll send you to my sons." Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, he he Denethor knows this, right? But yet he, it's like there's that moment almost of self-mockery, right? Of that he's spending even his sons. Uh, and remember, we talked about this with Saruman too, right? Had Saruman been at the head of his own army, things might have been different in some ways. Um, at least he wouldn't have been trapped. Um, trapped in Isengard. Yeah, yeah. Denith- and Gandalf reminds him, Right? Hi, why are we in the tombs? You should be on the battlefield right now, Denethor. Not just leading the men, but actually leading them. You should be out there on the field right now, like Theoden is. So yeah, I mean, that certainly is a, is, is a really sharp and important contrast between them. Okay, th- trying to think of topic I can raise and cover in like less than two minutes, and I thought of one. Uh, what do we learn about Gandalf in the first five chapters? So, how do we see him? his meetings with Denethor are very interesting and very revealing. Uh, very importantly, near the end of chapter one, Gandalf's give, Gandalf gives us his job description. The only time he talks about it. Did you see Gandalf's job description? Do you remember that? Remember it, Kelly? Um, I can't find the clue exactly, but he says that he... That Denethor may be the steward of Gondor, but he's steward of everyone. Yes. Good. Good. 7.41. The very last line of 7.41. I will say this. The rule of no realm is mine, neither of Gondor nor any other, great or small. But all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands, those are my care. And for my part, I shall not wholly fail of my task, though Gondor should perish, if anything passes through this night that can still grow fair and bear fruit and flower again in days to come. For I also am a steward. Did you not know? He is steward of Middle-earth. That's how he thinks of himself, anyway. What does it mean to be a steward? Santa? Someone who's placed in a role of leadership while you wait for the real leader to come back. Yeah, it's a position of delegated authority is one thing, right? And it's now it's not in the Gondorian context. It's in the place of the absent king. The stewards, the, lot of, the stewards existed back when they were still kings. They became ruling stewards in the absence of the king. Um, but, but the idea of a steward, it doesn't require absence, though it... Can often 
facilitate it. I mean, like, for instance, if you owned a bunch of lands uh, in a bunch of different places, you would appoint stewards to oversee your land when you weren't there personally to oversee it. And then you'd go around and you'd, you know, meet with your stewards and ask them to account for their stewardship and tell you how things are going. But they're supposed to look after things, to tend things on your behalf, either while you're gone or just while you're doing other things, right? Things that you can't personally attend to. So it's a leadership position. You're in charge, but it's a delegated, it's a position of delegated authority, and it's specifically caretaking, caretaking. Um, Look after things. Make sure things are doing okay. Take care of stuff. And so Gandalf is emphasizing all of these things. Notice where he starts. The rule of no realm is mine. I am not king anywhere. And I'm not, I don't want to be king anywhere. But I'm steward everywhere. Um, even Manway is a steward in one sense. Um, and isn't it interesting that Gandalf doesn't end up participating in the Battle of the Pelennor Field at all. It's really anticlimactic. He has that moment with the king of the, the, king of, the, of, of the Nazgul, right? There's that, like, Bridge of Khazad-dûm part two where they're facing each other and they make their little speeches, though I emphasize little. They're much shorter, right? He just says, go back, fall into the nothingness that awaits you and your master, which is kind of like go back to the shadow, right? And then... The Nazgul has a slightly more impressive speech. Old fool, this is my hour. Do you not know death when you see it? <laughs> Die now and curse in vain. I mean, that's pretty good too. Um, but again, this is the Lord of the Nazgul revealing himself. He's uncloaking himself now too, declaring himself. And not just himself, but the time. This is my hour. This is my moment of triumph. You can't stand it. This is not a fair fight. Because this is my time. Fate is with me, he says. And then what happens? Cock crows. Signaling, although it's dark, although all is night, right? Notice, remember, Amir says, uh, all is now night. But the, the woodman, gone, bury, gone, or as I believe it's supposed to be pronounced, and I really can't very successfully. The G-H is like a voiced sound. I'm almost physically incapable of making that consonantal sound, uh, but it is a legitimate phoneme uh, which exists. Anyway, says, uh, all is dark, but all is not night. Right? When the sun comes, we feel her. Right? Um, so does the rooster, apparently. But again, what does this show? This is my hour. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. It's not night. It's not your hour. It's dawn. The sun is coming. The day has come. And here comes Theoden and his horn uh, coming across the field. I don't have even 30 seconds to do Eowyn in the Lord of the Ring Wraith. So we'll touch on that and then spend more time with Denethor next time. Okay, and since I didn't actually burst into tears at any point, I consider that a victory. In the next class, in which we will cover the rest of Book 5 and the first chapter of Book 6, I will spend some time on Denethor, and we will look a lot more closely at exactly what is the relationship between hope and despair. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.